So I had a lot of people asking me uh, who that poem was. I, I wrote that poem, the, um, the one that I read before, at the end of the meditation. I had the good fortune of uh, taking myself off onto a self-retreat a couple of weeks ago where I wrote a lot of poems and um, or transcribed a lot of old poems too. <clears throat> so that was one of them. And at some point I will do something with them so they're available. I'm planning to um, have them as audio files on my website. My website's awakenthewild.com. So before I publish them, I'll probably have them um, read uh, by me uh, on my website. Um, so so I, I, because of that retreat, I've been this last little while reading and writing a lot of poetry and uh, thought I would share some this evening and talk about the fusion of Dharma and poetry. There's the, the Dharma, Dharma means truth or teachings or the Buddhist way. Um, so often is better expressed in poetry. And poetry is so often the expression of deep understanding and deep wisdom and deep clarity. Did I give you the nod? Are we on? Mm -hmm. Great. <laughs> um, and so much of what's to be discovered in our own experience is so ineffable and mysterious and hard to put a finger on, hard to really fully talk about. You know, a lot of the teachings uh, are really just pointed to a lot of the states and the experiences of awakening and freedom and emptiness and luminosity and clarity and all of that um, are not so easy to describe. And poetry is often the best vehicle to intimate and to point towards. And it's also just such a beautiful vehicle for pointing towards our human experience, both the joys, 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. <clears throat> so, um, so I bought a lot of poems and uh, I don't have much of a plan, but we'll see what happens. Um, And I've already lost the first poem I wanted to read. So after a <laughs> cracking, oh, here it is, after a cracking start. Um, <clears throat> this is not exactly a poem. It's by Lao Tzu. I think it's an adaption from um, the Tao Te Ching. It's not, I don't have the translator. Um, and his beautiful utterances are, again, such a beautiful example of how Words are used to point to the way, to the Tao, to the mystery. Um, and of course, words can only get so close. But we try anyway. He writes, or says, because they were supposed to be transcribed as he was leaving the country. He writes, always we hope someone else has the answer. Some other place will be better. Some other time it will all turn out. This is it. No one else has the answer. No other place will be better. 
and it has already turned out. <laughs> At the center of your being, you have the answer. You know who you are and you know what you want. Maybe you know more what you want than who you are, but anyhow. There is no need to run outside for better seeing, nor to peer from a window. Rather abide at the center of your being, for the more you leave it, the less you learn. Search your heart and see that the way to do is to be. Search your heart and see that the way to do is to be. Always we hope someone else has the answer. How often do we find ourselves looking in books and in tapes and CDs and talks and people and mentors and teachers and guides and spirit rock and who knows where else to hopefully find someone who has the answer, as if someone can give us the answer. We can get great guidance and inspiration and support and but can anybody really give us an answer that really has any value if we haven't discovered it through our own struggle and effort and inquiry and challenges? We always hope some other place will be better. And that's a big one. How much of our lives are we spent hoping that something else, somewhere else, will be better? Some other place will be better. I think of the CEO of BP who's thinking, <laughs> somewhere, some other place will be better than this. <laughs> Maybe it will. Maybe it won't when he faces the lawsuit. Who knows? some other place we will be better. This is a very deep pattern we all have of leaning forward, leaning into, leaning out of where we are, leaning out of this moment, out of this experience. How, how, much of you in your, in your, how many of you in your meditation were hoping <laughs> that some other place will be better, like when he rings the damn bell? <laughs> or when we get to the cookies? or the cup of tea, or the chit-chat, or the, you know, when I get to bed, or something. So we live this forward-leaning life in hope. Hope is the other side of fear. <clears throat> Always we hope some other time it will all turn out. This is kind of New Age philosophy that think it's all good, and it's all getting better, and it's all going to work out. Well, what happens is we all die, is how it works out. <laughs> that's the only reliable thing that we know, is we're all going to die. And that's a working out of sorts. So will it all turn out? Will the markets rectify themselves? Will famine go away? Will, will people start to really appreciate and love each other? Maybe, maybe not. So this is it. I love that line. This is it. This is your life. There used to be a TV show in England called This Is Your Life. This is it. So what's our relationship to, to, um, to that statement, this is it? This is it. This is all we have, this right now. There's no nirvana somewhere else. 
there's no enlightenment somewhere else. It's right here. Nirvana and samsara are in the same place, right here, right side in your own heart. This is it. So my teacher in India, one of my teachers in India, Punjaji, was a great Advaita Vedanta teacher, and he would often say, this is it, this is it. And I had two responses to that. One was, wow, this is it. Wow, this, this, wow, this is it. This is it. Wow, that's cool. Amazing. It's right here. Like, it's nowhere else. You know, it's in the marketplace. It's in the butcher store. It's in the, the kids begging in the street. This is it. It's right here. Whatever we're looking for, it's right here. And the other response was, oh, this is it? Oh, God, come on. Like, you know, it's got to be more, you know, beautiful and mystical and, you know, transcendent and blissful, all that stuff. <clears throat> this is it. No one else has the answer. No other place will be better. No other place will be better. Even though we book our vacations to Hawaii and we take ourselves there, don't we? You found, found that? Sort of pack ourselves in our suitcase. Most distressing. <clears throat> we take our minds. Our minds follow us around. Pesky little things. And it has already turned out. Our life has already turned out in this moment. It's a fulfillment of all that's been is right here in this moment. So then he says, at the center of your being, you already have the answer. You know who you are. So deep down, at some point, somewhere in us knows who we are. Somewhere we sense beneath all our running and busyness and distraction and trying to get somewhere and be somebody. We, the, we, we hear some call, some intimation, something deep inside of us. We sense something. Or maybe we hear something or we feel something that feels more true, more real, more authentic, more our true nature. And then what happens is we get busy and we get lost. We lose it. We lose, we lose connection, don't we? In the emails and the work and the taking care of the kids and the dogs and the car and all of that, we lose sight of a greater authenticity, a greater connection with being or source or spirit or God or whatever you call it. And so then we start looking, we start searching. because we And as he says, you know, the further we search, the, the, the further away we go, the more we search, the more we, we don't find because we're searching away from the source where the answers are available, which is right here. Which is why in meditation it's an inward turning, it's an it's a inward orientation to the source of our being, whatever that is. So search your heart and see that the only way to do is to be. The true being, as he often says, is to, the, the true doing is to be. Be a human being. You know, somewhere, some, somebody had some wisdom to call us human beings, except we've now become human doings, human shopping, homo shopians, <laughs> human consumings. <clears throat> 
So in meditation, we get a taste, we, we, we get to stop. You know, one of the ways we find ourselves is by stopping, stopping that endless outward momentum, moving, searching, seeking, running outside of ourselves. And we get to stop and we get to be. We get to be, just be, we get to be with ourselves, be with this moment, which is very uncomfortable for a lot of us. That's why the mind gets super busy when, as soon as we close our eyes, okay, time to think. Great, let's plan my next vacation. <laughs> let's go through all the people I'm having difficulty with at work, and let me work on my finances at the same time. <laughs> Figure it all out by 10 of 8 tonight. It's hard just to be with ourselves. I love that line from Louis Pasteur, the French philosopher, who said something like, most of the world's problems could be solved if, we could, if people could just learn to sit by themselves in a chair, in a room, alone for a few hours, yeah, which is really meditation, just to sit and be with ourselves alone, to face whatever it is that we don't want to be with, face what we seem to keep running from, So one of the things that happens when we face ourselves, perhaps, and be with ourselves, and we start to see more clearly, is we see how much we don't know. How much we don't know much about anything. <laughs> and that we don't know much about ourselves. We, we know the data and the history and the personality and the story and the events and all of that. but when we get closer to asking who we really are, what is this mystery of life, of being, of consciousness? What is that? We realize we know less and less. There's less reference point, less the mind has to say about these, these matters of depth. So I wanted to read this, this um, poem kind of a poem from Artie Lang, a great psychologist and writer, about knowing and not knowing and pretending to know. See if you relate to this in your own experience. There is something I don't know that I am supposed to know. I don't know what it is I don't know, and yet I'm supposed to know And I feel I look stupid if I seem to both not know it and not know what it is I don't know. (laughs) Therefore, I pretend to know it. (laughs) This is nerve-wracking, since I don't know what I must pretend to know. Therefore, I pretend to know everything. (laughs) I feel that you know what I'm supposed to know but you can't tell me what it is because you don't know that I don't know what it is. (laughs) You may know that I don't know, but not that I don't know it. And I can't tell you, so you'll have to tell me everything. (laughs) I love that line, since I don't know what I must pretend to know, therefore I pretend to know everything. How many people feel like they're pretending to know a lot going through life? Yeah? Like you have to do that at work, right? You have to pretend and you have to know a lot. I work with somebody and she's, she, she's a systems analyst, some very complicated 
you know, banking institution. And from the very first day that she got her new job, she felt like she had to know the whole system. It was a very complex system. She was you know, taking months, to, took her months to figure out. But this suffering of thinking that she had to know and had to pretend that she knew or felt like she had the, there was a pressure to know. So she, that's what she did. But all, I mean, what happens when we pretend to know? We feel like a fraud because we are being fraudulent. We're trying to be something that we're not. And so we go through life feeling really ungrounded, really insecure, because someone's going to find out at some point that we don't know what it is that we're supposed to know, but we're very busy pretending to know it. So it gets very messy. And as you said, it's nerve-wracking. <laughs> and I feel like I look stupid if I don't pretend to know what I should know. And then we back ourselves into a corner where we, we can't, we can't, it's too embarrassing to ask after a certain point because we've bluffed our way for so long <laughs> that we know what we're doing. You know, whether it's parenting or teaching or who knows what where this manifests. It's a great Zen story of the Zen master and the student who comes to him. A very, it was a, actually it was a, one of his um, a patrons, wealthy patron, who was quite haughty and sort of full of his own knowledge, self-knowledge. And he went for tea with a Zen master and um, asked for a teaching. On one had some questions about his teaching, and so they sat down to have tea, and the Zen master and doing the tea ceremony started pouring the tea and filled his cup up, and at the end his cup, his cup got fuller and fuller and then started overflowing, which is of course is a big faux pas and he's doing tea ceremony and the, the patron said, What are you doing? What are you doing? Stop. The cup's overflowing. And the Zen master said, You know, you want me to answer your questions. There's no way that you'll be able to receive the teaching because your mind is so full, so full of thinking you know everything. How can I penetrate? How can anything penetrate that thick skull of yours if you keep thinking you know everything? You know, so it takes a certain humility to do this practice, to sit down on the cushion and say, I don't know a thing. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how I'm going to deal with it. I don't know who I am. I don't know what this moment's going to be. I don't know what my breath is like. I don't know what's in my heart. Because you know? we don't when we sit down to meditate or do anything. So this is a um, poem called Spring Mysteries that I wrote uh, on this retreat. I was up in the um, uh, northern New Mexico, up in the Carson National Forest in the wilderness retreat center called Vallecitos, land of little valleys, a beautiful place at 9,000 feet. And I got there just, just at the start of spring two weeks ago. It, spring had barely popped open its golden little face, and uh, which was fun going from, you know, almost summer back to spring again. The aspens are leafing in reverse order. The trees high on the mountain are already weaving their emerald clothes, but the ones that love the low valleys are still a ghostly silvery gray. Who would have surmised that exposed to the cold and biting winds, the high aspens would be spring's first scout? I am sure there is logic in it. 
nature marches to indomitable laws and does nothing that is fickle or arbitrary. Still, I wonder what it is that signals and whispers and coaxes the tight buds to open and release their leafy packages. Perhaps it's because their collars of snow have melted or the warm sun is penetrating into their frozen trunks. But none of these answers really do it. In fact, I don't really want to know for sure. Sometimes I find it is better to allow a little mystery to seep its way into our days, to throw off the yoke of knowledge and stay suspended in awe like children who have yet to turn away from such wonders. So it was a really beautiful landscape where the, <clears throat> where the aspens were coming, seeping down into the meadows as they do to reclaim the land for the forest. And um, there was this sort of whole panorama of colors from, from bright green down to silver and white of the, the bark. And, um, you know, one of the things about being in nature is it's always revealing that mystery. It's always throwing us back to ourselves and inviting us to suspend our knowledge of biology and whatever field of expertise we have, ornithology, and, and just to simply be, just to experience the unfolding of you know, aspen leaves or deers running through the forest or the carpets of dandelions that, that came up, that come up. And to see if we can just be touched, be open to that wonder, you know, as children do, as children don't lose that, haven't lost yet that, they're not so entrenched in thinking they should know why the slug is so slimy, but they just like the sliminess of the slug. You know, they're just in awe of that, of the way the snail curls up into the shell, you know. And we lose that with our, with our preference, our, uh, our leaning into our minds. <clears throat> so hopefully meditation uh, is one of the doorways that invites us into this quality of not knowing. You know, the, the, the teachings talk a lot about the practice of beginner's mind. <clears throat> this quality of not knowing who we are, not knowing what is, being open, being curious, being fresh. So, <clears throat> how many of you are, uh, would you say, are relatively new on your? spiritual path? Always new. Always new. Great answer. <laughs> How many of you feel like it's just old and dusty and it's you're like... In the... You know, it's an interesting answer. It's always new. Because, you know, I've been traipsing my own journey for the last 25 years and I, always, I do always feel like there's a sense of like going into the dark, not really, not really quite knowing what's ahead. You know, it, feels, it feels as fresh and as unknown and as uncertain as it did you know, those 20, 25 years ago. 
I might know a lot more stuff. I know a lot more Sanskrit words. <laughs> Fat lot of good that does you when you're suffering. But anyhow, um, sounds good though. <laughs> oh, this must be dukkha. Oh. Well, that was useful. <laughs> But, you know, it's just, we're just faced with ourselves and the mystery of the moment. Just, you know, it's, it's always mysterious to me. Just, you know, as I think it was Wittgenstein, or one of the great philosophers who said, you know, it's something like, it's amazing that there is anything rather than nothing. In this universe, it is amazing that there is something rather than nothing. You know, that there is something, that we're alive, that we have senses, that... We just don't know what's going to unfold in the next, in, in this day, you know. We don't know how this night's going to unfold for you. Maybe you'll meet the love of your life. Maybe you'll see a deer by the dead of the road and it will wake you up. Maybe you'll, you'll have insomnia. Maybe you'll sleep like a baby, like you haven't slept for 10 years. Who knows? We just don't know. It's very mysterious. So, um, this is a poem. Uh, it's really old. I wrote it today. <laughs> um, forgive me for reading so much of my own poetry, but since I've got the stage up here, I can do what I want. So <clears throat> It's called, What Are You Doing Here? As you slip off your shoes and your feet touch the cold and ancient stone of the temple floor, <coughs> Though incense lingers and you stay a while, you are not quite sure what the tug is that you feel pulling on every twisted sinew in your tired body. But something lingers in the sweetened air as you get a taste, a faint whiff of something so unfathomably ethereal but thunderously present, something that shatters every shell, every structure, every illusion you like to carry about yourself, until you feel naked and comfortable and alone, but also feel the warm hands holding you that would not let you fall. There you feel an invitation to open, to risk everything you knew, all that you held precious, to find, to taste, to grow into that which you have been searching for, for a lifetime. So I partly wrote that because I remembered, um, for some reason today, uh, stepping foot into my first temple of sorts in the East End of London. And I think I told this story recently here. I was a punk rocker and this white mohawk and uh, didn't look like your typical Buddhist, you know. <laughs> big earrings, these wild clothes. And um, I was pretty unhappy and I was searching for something. I didn't know what I was searching for. I didn't know I was lost, but I knew I was looking for something. And I, I stepped foot into this Buddhist center in the East End of London, which is like going into sort of, it was like very run down, depressed part of London at the time the last place you'd ever think there would be a Buddha center in 1984. And, um, and there was incense in the air, and there's these beautiful golden Buddhas and these big 
paintings like this on the walls. I had no idea what they were, but I thought they were cool. And um, there was something in the air. You can feel it when you walk into a sacred place. There's something in the air. We had a day of, dance, a day of dancing and meditation here on Saturday that I lead with a, uh, Laurie Seltzman from the Five Rhythms tradition. And somebody commented about how they've been doing their, this dance practice, which is a very sacred dance practice for years and years and years. But she said she found something very different about doing it in this hall because it's sacred space in here. However unglorious this building might be, it's sacred space. And it's been sacred space for thousands and thousands of people for many, many years. And so it changes what happens in here. So the dance form was very different for people. It was very beautiful. So, um, so, so I stepped foot into this, into this meditation center and didn't know what to expect, was a little intimidated, a little insecure, pretending I knew, you know, something, but didn't really. Um, and felt something, and I was speaking to in that poem, that was calling, like it just is just, you know, something in our, in our being knows. It's being pulled to some depth, to some knowing, to some understanding. And I also saw it in the look in people's eyes. That was the giveaway. You know, there's a few people working there and doing their, whatever they were doing, and sitting, and, and they had some, something that spoke to me of something they had touched, some sparkle, some clarity, some lightness. And I knew that whatever that is, I want that. Whatever they seem to have access to, I want that. So, 25 years later, <laughs> here we are. So, and I see it in your eyes. You know? See it in your presence. The one thing we don't see about ourselves is our own presence. We don't see the grace that we carry, whatever grace that is. We don't see our the presence that we bring into the world. We might feel it. We can be self-aware of our own presence, but we don't see our inner glow. That's just the gift we give to others. So, um, so as we start to walk this journey, <clears throat> and... Um, we go through the phase of perhaps, you know, the, we go through the honeymoon phase, <laughs> which, you know, where we have all these grandiose ideas about enlightenment and meditation and how enlightened all the teachers are, which is true. No, just kidding. <laughs> and, um, you know, so at times we can touch a lot of lightness and clarity and happiness and bliss. And I remember the first, I, I, I basically dropped out of college and moved into this retreat center um, for a couple of years, shaved my head, shaved my mohawk off, gave all my clothes away to this women's co-op that were, they were very happy about that. 
and um, uh, and and experience a lot of bliss. I felt like I'd, I'd, I'd come, I felt like I'd come home. I was really, really happy. And it lasted for quite a while. My meditation was incredibly blissful. Uh, I felt like beginner's luck, which sometimes is what happens. Um, you know, and that went on for a while, and then of course, you know, some point the shit hits the fan, and you start to, you know, face yourself and be with yourself, and, and, and start to touch the more difficult stuff. Start to touch the stuff which motivated you to to start your spiritual search in the first place, usually. So this poem is called Finding Ourselves. <clears throat> And it's about the, um, the perseverance it takes to walk this path. It's not an easy path. Any spiritual path that demands all of us, which a spiritual path does, means it demands all of us. So every part of ourselves, every part that we've, that's been hurt, damaged, every struggle, every existential angst has to be looked at. Fears, losses, abandonment. Called Finding Ourselves. I wrote this um, recently. What do you now have to give up to truly find yourself? What has to be let go? The numberless faces you have to disappoint the arms outstretched, demanding your attention, wanting your time, begging for your presence. What allows you to turn towards the one who has been forgotten, neglected, even abandoned? Perhaps you don't know the voice living inside that lives a separate life, the one you have ignored while trying to satisfy those other cries. It takes a certain will, a bold act of courage, even a moment of grace for you to remember the shade of your own face, the taste of your own skin, to know the beat of your heart. And in that turning there will be times you will feel banished to the wasteland, scorned for your selfishness, dismissed for not helping, disowned for straying. But there also comes a time when you finally realize you have to go into the night to find your true inheritance something only found in the stillness of the dark and the bitter regions of grief and the desolation of loss. Terror may reign there, hopelessness and confusion, and you will be stripped bare. But you sense there is no choice but to keep diving into the abyss. There you will face your own annihilation and stare into the mirror of your infinite aloneness until after some time, perhaps an infinity, that wasteland becomes familiar, loneliness becomes a memory, and you feel strangely at home, finally at ease in your own company, not divided against yourself, where you find everything stands solitary yet intimate, not yet understood but felt. And from that dark night you step back into the day, though its colors may blind you and bewilderment comes, you come to know who you are, the same yet transformed. The old tugs don't, ca don't catch you, 
and you move lighter, not weighed down by the call to leave yourself again, not for anything. That road lies a sure death. This path speaks of emergence. So, anybody relate to that? Yeah. We all have to walk those paths where we have to be alone. We have to, at some point, listen to the call of our own hearts, which will often mean that we disappoint our loved ones, our friends, our family, where we'll feel that tug, that tug to, as another poet says, to mend my life. Mary Oliver says, mend my life as the voices cried out as you walked out into the night. Mend my life, those voices cried. And we realize we have to walk this path alone. We can do it in community, but we essentially walk alone. And we, at times, have to face the dark, difficult places that are not easy, that are not what we signed up for. (coughs) Oh, please, bring on the annihilation, bring on the terror. No, we don't sign up for that. (laughs) We would run a thousand miles if we knew what we would have to go through in in this journey. But at some point we don't have a choice and it becomes a great source of healing to go into those dark places, the lonely places, the scared places, until as I wrote something about, we finally become at ease in our own company. And we find that everything stands solitary like we do, yet intimate. When we go into the, the, the cave of our aloneness, our true aloneness, we actually feel, because we've, we become intimate with ourselves, we, st- we become intimate with everything. So I could go on about that, but I'm going to pass that on for now, come back to that another day, because I want to read some other poems from other people. Um, A poet that I've come to really appreciate recently is the poet Marie Howe. People familiar with Marie Howe's work? No? Beautiful poet. So... um, this poem speaks to the, um, how our practice has to um, come down from the dizzying heights of our idealism into the nitty-gritty of every single little dirty plate and smelly sock that we have. It's called What the Living Do. And she's writing to Johnny, who's her, who's her recently deceased young uh, brother, who took his life when he was 28. Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there, and the drainer won't work but smells dangerous, and the crusty dishes have piled up waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the every day we spoke of. It's winter again. The skies are headstrong blue, 
and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again and again later when buying a hairbrush. This is it, parking, slamming the, door car, slamming the car door shut in the cold, what you called that yearning, what you finally gave up. We want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not to call, a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say, the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, chapped face, and unbuttoned coat that I'm speechless. I am living, I remember you. So she's a very powerful poet. I make a correction, her, her brother died of AIDS. Um, so, and I love how that poem ends as she goes into the, the, the nitty-gritty of what the living do, the broken plumbing and the, the overheating apartment and all of that that she's walking along the sidewalk and catches a glimpse of her face and she's overcome by a, by an upspring of cherishing, of affection. That as we go into the difficult with a sense of openness and receptivity and it allows at some point for the heart to break open with an unexpected tenderness, with an unexpected love and appreciation So, and the you know, Dharma teachings are asking that we open to all of it. You know, as she said, we want winter to leave and spring to come. You know, now spring's here. Maybe we want spring to leave and summer to come. You know, maybe when summer's here, it gets too hot, and we want fall to come. You know, and then we get tired of seeing all the brown grass. We want winter to come. You know. And, so we keep leaning, like that first poem talked about. What is it to open to all the seasons of our life? To whatever the spring gales want to blow in and the summer storms and the melancholic fall and the harsh winters. So... Um, <clears throat> couple more poems and then I'll wrap up here. So this is a poem that I love um, from a poet I don't know so much about called Anna Akhmatova called Everything is Plundered. And again, it speaks to this beautiful um, juxtaposition of how both the, the, di- the, the difficult, the dukkha, is not, is not separate from the sukha, from the joy, 
that's available. We shut down the dukkha, we shut down our hearts, we shut down the joy. But we, if we open to one, we open to both. <clears throat> it starts off a little bleak, but hang in there because it picks up. <laughs> I don't totally depress you. I'll read some happy poems in a minute. Everything is plundered, betrayed, sold. Death's great black wing scrapes the air. Misery gnaws to the bone. Why then, why then do we not despair? By day from the surrounding woods, cherries blow summer into town. By day from the surrounding woods, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deep transparent skies glitter with new galaxies. And the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses. And the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses. I love that image. By day from the surrounding woods, the cherry trees are blowing their blossoms into town. No matter how dark and how difficult that life, spring, the earth, something is blowing something beautiful and light. And the miraculous comes so close, the divine, the mystery, the sacred, comes so close even to the ruined, dirty house. In all of our, you know, in all of the ugly devastation that we may have reaped, the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses. How are you guys doing out there? Let me have a look here. Let me see. <laughs> You're still awake. You, can you handle any more poems or you had enough? You good? Okay. All right. A couple more. And then we'll send you to bed. We'll give you a good night bedtime story. Do you get a cookie? <laughs> yes, we'll serve milk and cookies for when you... So, um, this is a great Dharma poem from Mary Oliver, who's speaking about, you know, she's a, such a great poet of how nature is just constantly giving us its secrets on how to live and how to live well. It's called In Blackwater Woods. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away forever over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, 
And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it. And then, when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. That's the Dharma right there. It's like, you know, it's so beautiful. What the, what's so beautiful about her writing is it's so succinct and yet so profound. To live in this world, we must be able to do three things. To love what is more, to love what is here, to love this moment, to love our body, to love each other, to love this life, to love this flower, this child, this chair, this moment. To hold on, to appreciate. And then when it's time to let it go, however blissful the meditation, however ecstatic, however profound the insight, however great the achievement, the next moment it's gone, it's over, it's history, it's dead, it's past. We let it go, or we drag it around with us like a dead corpse (laughs) in our heavy backpack of all the other things we haven't let go of, and we wonder why we're feeling heavy and burdened. No, we get to let it go like the, you know, like the dandelions, you know, then the blow off and the, the wind comes and blows their seeds like parachutes in the air. So... So I'll leave you with one more Mary Oliver poem. Or maybe I'll mix it up a little. How about some Billy Collins? So um, I can't really, yeah, I can't really give a talk about poetry without talking about a poem on love, without including Billy. So this is called Aimless Love. Since really love is the, the summation of all our practice, you know, as we practice and we grow and we deepen and we open and we understand and we soften and we feel the suffering and open our hearts into compassion, hopefully what the fruit of all our practice is it allows us to be more kind, more caring, more loving, more tender, more sensitive human beings. So, and I think the journey of a poet, as, 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 as Collins is speaking to in this poem, uh, speaks to that journey. It's called Aimless Love. This morning, as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren, and later in the day with a mouse, the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress still at her machine at the tailor's window, and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, 
without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or those long silences on the telephone. <laughs> the love of the chestnut, the jazz cap, and one hand on the wheel. No lust, no slam of the door. The love of the miniature orange tree, the, the clean white shirt, the hot evening shower, the highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting, no huffiness or rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water, and for the dead mouse still dressed in its light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap, so patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish. I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap, so patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish. <laughs> so we can fall in love with anything if our heart's open, if we're present enough to to be present. So um, thank you for your kind attention tonight. It was really a pleasure to be here. And um, it's the first time I've really shared my poetry writing. So um, thank you for being, not to hurling rotten tomatoes at me. <laughs> so as I said, that none of these, none of my poems are published. Um, yet. Um, maybe they will be, who knows. But if not, uh, they will be at least, I want to, there'll be an audio versions on my website you can probably download or at least listen to. So my website's awakenthewild.com. And just a little plug for my work, I, um, one of the things I love to do is um, lead outdoor meditation retreats like the one I'm doing in a couple of weeks, June 19th, where we teach mindfulness meditation and silence outdoors. I'm leading a beautiful yoga meditation wilderness retreat in Costa Rica at the end of the year uh, with Janice Gates, where we go out into the tropical jungle of Costa Rica on the coast. Um, beautiful time to bring in the new year in silence. And um, I have some information about that retreat, and I have my, my cards that have information about my private practice and coaching and other things. So um, Jack will be here next week. I don't think I'm here for a while. I'm traveling a lot this summer. But um, I look forward to seeing you when I do. Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.